Pharisees, of course, were a people who believed in washing pots and pans and vessels. And Jesus Christ characterized them as people who would make the outer part of a bowl or a vessel clean, but inside they were ravening wolves. Now, if there's something you can do with regard to religion, it's very satisfying. The Catholics provide that. Many other religions do. When you walk into a Catholic church, you know that you actually begin to do things physically with your hands and your body. You dip into the holy water, you genuflect, you cross yourself, you pull out a rosary and you say the beads. In other religions, there are things that you can do, special habits and garb that you can wear, certain postures you can take, clothing you can affect. Women wear a hat or a veil. Men wear black hats or garments or they grow a beard. There are things that you can do that are physically satisfying. I want to talk today about thoughts, about how mental true Christianity really is. All of us gradually grew from little babyhood, and we grew physically. I see my little grandson, and even three weeks or so when I hadn't seen him for a while, I can see a little bit of growth that is very discernible the first time I see him after a few weeks' absence. We grow physically first. Then we get, as we call, an education, but education really is what you learn from the time you're born to the time you die. It's not something you go to school to get. You're learning, hopefully, most all of your life. And allegedly, we're supposed to accumulate knowledge and we're to grow mentally with regard to the things that we know, data, facts, experiences, and so on. The next way in which we're to grow is emotionally. But you know, most of us, and I think women would be very quick to admit that most boys are just even men are grown-up boys with toys that cost more money. We've heard women say that for many, many years. Down inside of all of us, no matter how old we are, is a little boy or a little girl. And in many ways, even when we are mature, we can react like a little child. We can lose our cool, we can react spitefully, emotionally, and almost act as if we have not really emotionally grown up. And the last way we grow up, above all of that, is spiritually. We grow up emotionally, last of all, and some people never, and we mature truly, spiritually, last of all, if we ever do, between now and the time of the second coming of Christ. When Peter told the Jews, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, he was talking about something that was mental. He didn't say, clasp your hands together. He didn't say, get on your knees. He didn't say, make the sign of the cross. He did not say, crawl five miles on your knees and leave blood. He didn't say, join the Iranians at Ashura, bare your back, and lash yourself bloody with a cat of nine tails. That might have been very much fun. He didn't say, pluck your eyebrows, shave your head, although some religions do, and even in the Jewish uh, temple, people would actually shave their heads when they would take a vow upon themselves. It had to be very satisfying. Oh, there goes a the guy with a vow. He just shaved his head. He said none of those things. He talked about repentance. And that has to do with the mind and with the emotion. In Romans, the 12th chapter, pivotal scripture of what I want to talk about today, one that I think few people ever really achieve, it says that we are to be completely renewed in the spirit of our minds. Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, sorry, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
and be not conformed to this world. I just finished an article entitled, entitled In, in quotes. We all remember that, at least when I was a kid, the expression went out because of Errol Flynn, who was a known womanizer and so on, and he was the daring-do fellow that did all the swashbuckling movies from, uh, where was he, Australia. And I think my wife once read a biography about him, but I didn't read it. But apparently in real life it was a lot worse than they made it appear in the movies. So back in the 40s, there was an expression, in like Flynn. Remember that? Well, now today, and down during the 60s, they, they got this American vernacular, this American slang that said, well, he's into drugs. Way back when I was a boy, my mother would say, what are you into, Teddy? Meaning the cookie jar or the toy box or whatever. Or uh, people would say, well, what got into him or whatever. But now people will say, well, I'm not into that or I'm not into this or I am into that. And it's a slang expression that means I'm studying something, or I've taken this up as a hobby, or I have this new habit, or whatever. The word in, I use as a title to show how desperately, from the time we are children, we desire to conform, to blend in, not to make waves, but to be part of a kind of a homogeneous mass and not to stand out. We learn that in school, because when the teacher in a schoolroom of 20 or 30 kids calls on your name, immediately your heart starts to pound faster, you're embarrassed, you're wondering what all the other kids are thinking. If you haven't got your lessons prepared, and we've all had those experiences, and they call upon you to stand up and give a report or something like that, there is nothing more absolutely embarrassing. It is a painful exercise to grow up as a child and desperately want to be in, in the classroom, in, on the playground, a part of the unit and to move as a unit and not to be sticking out like a sore thumb and to be perceived as being different. This conformity is something that we see all the way through many organizations, including the military and religious organizations. That's why the military wear uniforms. Years ago, I said facetiously that men ought to fight wars in the nude because it's only those uniforms we learn to hate. It'd be ridiculous if two naked men standing out there in a sleet storm with a rifle pointing at each other, hey, he's a man just like I am. Why do I want to kill this guy? But the different colors and the chevrons and the badges and the color of khaki or of gray or whatever and the funny-looking peak caps and the big metal cold scuttle helmets, they all have a kind of an evil connotation. When I joined the Navy, I learned what it was like to be conformed. March in step, wait in line, do exactly what other people did, and learn to be a part of a homogeneous blob, and I felt comfortable. When I walked off that ship with my white hat and naval uniform on, I was one of 3,000 people, and that felt good, to be one of a mob, not to be standing out separate, but to be undiscernible from anybody else. Be not conformed to this world. And many people don't look at the world as being a world of religion. They don't think of the Methodists, Baptists, Seventh-day Adventists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Catholics, Mormons, or whatever, as being religions of this world. That's not worldly, certainly. The churches of this world aren't worldly, are they? But be ye transformed. Now, we all know what a transformer is. When you go overseas, you want to take one with you in your suitcase. It's a little sort of an adapter in reality. And you can buy a little adapter, and you can plug it into some of their 220 DC that's going to burn up your hair dryer or your electric shaver, and it'll convert it to 110 because they've got different currents than we have. 
And you know what a convertible automobile is. You can convert it from a top automobile to a topless automobile. To be transformed is to be changed by the renewing of your mind. How far along the road are we to having our mind renewed? Now, let's all assume that this is potluck. We've been around for about four or five hours back here, and we've had some wine, we've had a couple of beers, we've got a church dance going, there's a band up here in the platform, and it's let your hair down, and we all start telling stories. Let's bring up the subject of marriage. Let's bring up automobiles. Let's bring up uh, any subject you want to, and we can tell a joke. Now, of course, all parties tend to degenerate. They start out, everybody walking in, hi, how are you doing here? Have a cocktail, and they're getting in each other's face. And as the time goes along and the cocktails flow freely, they get louder and louder. It's just harder to hear with all the booze in your head, right? So people are in each other's face, and they're talking louder and louder. So parties tend to degenerate. Remember the country western song, did I... What is it? Did I dance on the table? Did I shoot out the lights? How's that go? Something like that. But he knows he had a good time because his head's like this. And he says, kill that cat to quit stomping on the rug. And he can't, you know, his head hurts. And he got a terrible hangover. So he wonders if he got up on the table and wore the lampshade, made an absolute fool of himself. What I'm leading up to is that in your brain is probably the same first dirty story I heard. And if you're not careful... We could sit around and we could renew that thought. We could trigger out of your subconscious, out of your buried long ago memory, every evil joke, every dirty word. There isn't a person in this room that hasn't heard the same dirty words I've heard. You know every dirty word I do. I do not know a single dirty word you don't know. There's not an ignorant person in this room that has never heard six or eight of the dirty words I heard in the Navy. Now, here's my question I want to get at. Since in my old letterbox in my house, in the picture albums, in my credenza in my desk, there are things that date back to the time of my courtship of Shirley Hammer before I was ever married. Since in my files in my office are some of the papers I turned in to my professors in Ambassador College in 1952, I can pull out lessons from geography to Spanish and show them to you. I've got all my notes from Bible class in bound volumes that I can show them to you. And since it is quite possible that the hands of Jesus Christ of Nazareth could achieve, could pick up the old letters that I wrote to Shirley, could pick up my old bound volumes and my class notes and could physically, with his divine hands, did you write that, Ted? And ask me about them, because they are there as a record. And my question is, could Christ also interrogate my memory, and will my memory be as keen at the moment of his coming as it might be if you and I were sitting around after the third glass of wine with our hair let down telling stories? Or will there come, through some process of time, a, a flushing out, a, a cleansing, a, an absolute removal of the thoughts, the actual thought processes that are vile and foul and evil in God's sight? 
Have our minds really been renewed, or has there only been a little additive put in? I pondered for many, many years how slowly people change, and sometimes how people seem to change not at all. That literally decades can go by, and people can still be as short-tempered, or as spiteful, or as miserly, or as pecuniary, or as small, small thinking, small in vision, small in their reactions to other people. They can still have the same old grudges. They can still carry and bear the same malice towards certain people or things or institutions. And nothing seems to change. But be ye transformed, that's changed, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we've said time and again, you know, we are what we eat, we know that. But we're also mentally what we think, and I've gone through that. Our memories, our language, the stories and jokes that we have heard. Let's turn to Colossians, the third chapter. We'll just go through a few scriptures that are very instructive on this. We won't belabor it or beat it over the head too much, but I want to get across one important point. Colossians, the third chapter, beginning in verse 1. If ye then be risen, that's out of the baptismal pool, to walk in newness of life with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on this earth. If you watched any television at all yesterday, they had decided, I guess, they were going to do all they could to help out all of the people, the retailers and the people in the malls, and they were going to really hype the shopping season. I reacted a little angrily because I'm sitting there with some of my family and I'm flipping around, and I mean, it was that Friday, which is the first day after Thanksgiving, and every one of those channels from CNN to three of them from Dallas had reporters standing in shopping malls telling us how the shopping was going. And my wife is up in the kitchen, she's hearing shopping, and I'm turning around and says, oh, and the shopping is going, click, and the shopping is going here. I was so mad I could have thrown a shoe through the television set. Do they honestly think that the poor people in this country that have already been analyzed to where you're tired and sick of hearing about it, who are going to spend less money this Christmas, are going to spend more because the media are running around the shopping mall saying, how's it going? How many people are buying all these toys? It was absolute nonsense. And I see these scriptures about the things which are above instead of the things on this world, the materialistic values of human beings, the the insensate stupidity of human beings of absolutely no long-range goals reflecting the purpose of life or God's kingdom at all, but just utter ignorance of it. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You know, I honestly think maybe we would be well served if we would next year have a Thanksgiving dinner here in this room. But then I think, what real good would it do? Would it merely be a, uh, a publicity stunt? We could fill the belly of some Tyler homeless once. All of you ladies could cook a big meal and we could come out here and we could put out a table like they'd never seen once. But are we going to provide homes for all the homeless? Is the United States going to absorb the entire population of Haiti? Are we going to absorb the population of Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Brazil, and Bangladesh? Are we going to take all the poverty-stricken Indians who every time they put down a sewer pipe, the truck rolls away, a family moves in? Are we going to be able to give 
uh, a beautiful brick veneer fireplace, three bedroom, two bath home with a double garage, a double oven, and 90 energy slaves, and a good job and three square meals a day to every human being on the face of the earth below the poverty level? Is that what America's all about? And is that what churches are supposed to do? You talk about Peter and the dyke with 17 holes and only two thumbs. There is just no possible way. So while people will affect some momentary, temporary cure, which in fact is not really even a pump priming because it doesn't provide the wherewithal so that those people may get out of that poverty. It is only a momentary passing thing, one meal, and a day from then they're just as hungry as they were when they walked in. And the basic reason why they are poor has not changed. Now, it'd be nice to do. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. Maybe we should do that. But we shouldn't do it just for the publicity. And if we do it, it ought to be more than the sunshine mission that says, okay, we'll give you a bowl of soup if you listen to me preach. We ought to insist that they take some literature away with them and read it. But it's interesting when you look at people's values in this world and what they attempt to do about it. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. I'm going to go down now in verse, in verse uh, 6 where he talks about all of the evil things in verse 5 and the reason why God's wrath is coming on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime, and we did, when you lived in them. But now you also put off all of these, and every bit of it is mental, isn't it? Anger. Have we done that yet? No, not perfectly. A lot of us get angry at least once a week about something or other. Is it justifiable anger? Is it godly anger? Or is it childlike, spiteful anger? Is it unreasonable ang anger? Is it embarrassing anger? Is it non-essential anger? Is it utterly ridiculous and futile anger because it accomplishes nothing? Wrath, that's different from anger. That is a sort of a malevolence that just sits in there of an angry person. Malice, worse yet, that's an abiding grudge of anger and hatred toward one other human being that just kind of rears its ugly head every now and then and just sits in there and corrodes your very spiritual viscera. Malice hurts you. Now, Jesus said this, didn't he? He said continually that the Pharisees would wipe the outside of the cup, but inside there were ravening wolves, and he called them whitened sepulchers, inwardly full of dead men's bones. And he also talked about all their washings and how they were really getting after the disciples because they rubbed some grains of wheat and they ate them with unwashed hands. And he told them, look, don't you know a little bit of dirt? And We've all eaten a cockroach or two in our lives. Yep hate to think about that, but it's probably true. My sister once found a moth spread out as if in full flight in the middle of her hamburger at a drive-in. She screamed, ah, that thing was that big, had a body that big around. I can't even imagine what it would have tasted like she'd have bitten into it. I, from then on, you know, you take the lid off your hamburger and look. Anyway, we've all eaten, as we used to say, our peck of dirt. We don't want to think about it. But Christ said it's cast out in the draw. Your body is able to take care of that if it's good, honest, clean dirt not really going to hurt you unless it's something to give you tomaine poisoning. That's not the story. But he said, even if that's true, if you want to go to that link, which he didn't, if you get sick from eating something physically debilitating, it doesn't pollute your conscience. It doesn't pollute your mind, this mental part, the spiritual part of your life that I'm talking about. Even arsenic doesn't do that to you. Some idiot can go down here and tamper, tamper with a box of pills you buy, like what was it they were tampering with Tylenol back a few years ago. And you can end up dead. That won't kill you spiritually. But he said that which is inside your heart that boils up and comes out in thoughts which finally are expressed by your mouth, now that can pollute 
a man or a woman. That can pollute us. And he said, that's what we should avoid. This is all mental, isn't it? Blasphemy. Let me uh, just momentarily pause to tell you about a lady that came to me one time, two times, over a period of two or three years. And she was really struggling with this, and maybe somebody's had that problem. She wanted help because she suspected that maybe a demon was trying to influence her. She was very serious about it. And I was very serious with my answer about how she ought to try to overcome it. Because she said she was having terrible trouble controlling her thoughts. And she was actually having a, an impulse, a compulsion, to think dirty, filthy thoughts in connection with Christ or God or the Holy Spirit, and to say words against God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, mentally. And I agreed with her that, yes, that may be what the source of that irritation, that antagonism was, and told her about prayer, about Bible study, about meditation, how to get rid of those thoughts. Now, let me just express to you something that will really, I think, ring a bell with all of us. Have you ever maybe been riding along and turn on your radio, and you're just driving down the road on a long trip, and you find out you're getting enervated and nervous and, and upset, and finally you, you reach up and you turn off the radio and you just say, oh, man, that's what it was. Whew, I'm glad to get that sound out of my ears. Well, now, on the other hand, have you heard the opposite of that? Have you ever heard a song that got to you so much you couldn't get, out of your, couldn't get it out of your mind? My wife and I have had the experience many times in our married life. All of a sudden, I think a time or two, we may have even begun to whistle or to sing the same song at the same time. And it's something we hadn't thought of, maybe for a month or whatever, or maybe it was put in our minds subconsciously, show you how two human beings living that close together can be alike, maybe, after... A period of years, but I will start to to uh, da 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 whatever some kind of a song, a, a tune, and she'll say, "How did you start that tune when that was the very song that I'm just now thinking about?" Any other married couples have that experience? But you know, I have had the experience of songs that'll get in my mind, get lodged in my brain. I'll go around and just hear them all the time. Now, because I have never in my life consciously heard Michael Jackson. I have never had a Michael Jackson song going around the back of my mind. Furthermore, please, youngsters, forgive me, I never will. Oh, Garner Ted, he's just out of it. He's going to live his life and he's going to die if I'm still alive and God lets me die before Christ comes, before I'll ever have a Michael Jackson going around and around and around in my brain. I'm going to just protect my brain from that guy because anybody that does and looks like and sounds like the way he does, he's not going to affect my mental processes. I just have I've just blocked him out. Now, I can name a lot of other people. That includes Willie Nelson, for some of you people that really love people that sing through their nose. I know he's a millionaire. I know he's a millionaire, and I and and I you know he's smiling all the way to the bank bank for uh, singing through his nose. That's fine. That just shows to me the taste of American people. But I don't have to partake of it. So basically, you know, you stop to think about the things that will affect you mentally. Now, I had an experience that was similar to that where I just couldn't get certain songs out of my mind. So to do it, I put other songs and other thoughts in. Now, we're coming to that because Christ talks about that a little bit. He says, put off wrath, malice, blasphemy. Look, verse 8 of Colossians 3, filthy communication out of your mouth, because it comes out of the heart. Now, sometimes... We will say, you know, I haven't thought of that old joke 
in eight or ten years, or we'll make a joke out of a joke and say, the first time I heard that, it kicked the slats right out of my cradle. I laughed so hard. Because that's how old that joke is. That joke's got a beard. But you know, as I say, if we sit down with three glasses of wine after a potluck and get a little relaxed, most of us might find out that that mind of ours has not been washed as completely clean of a lot of these old things as we might wish. Now, as I drew the analogy that Christ's own hands may sort through some of our scraps and bits and pieces of our past life that we've kept as a permanent record, how much of our brain has stored things that are rotten and vile and evil in God's sight, and how many of those things will still be there when Christ comes to ask us, hey, you remember the one about... And we're going to say, oh, I, I do. I wish I didn't. You know, I remember years ago, some of the guys in hunting camp really took exception to a man, one of our number, that I grew to love and respected very highly. And he was right, and the rest of the guys in hunting camp, and that included me at that moment, were wrong. Somebody tried to tell him an off-color joke, and they got started, and we were out in hunting camp. Now, that's a place where things are rough. And they just started, and he kind of heard where they were going. He said, please. I wish you wouldn't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. He got up and walked right out of that tent. I'll tell you one thing. People might not have liked that guy in some ways, but they sure had to respect him. How often have we done that? How often have some, has somebody started to say, have you heard the one about it? You say, no, should I? Is that something I want to hear? And then you hear where it's going. You say, I'm sorry. Forget it. Leave me out. I don't want that back in my brain, or I don't want that old submerged bit of garbage that I buried years ago to get up here all nice and stinky again, you know, stir it up, fill it with maggots, let me smell it again, because I got rid of that a long time ago. He goes on and says in verse 12 and 13 that we're to put on these innermost feelings, the word bowels is unfortunate, but it really means right down to the depth of your being, mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against another. Now, let us come down to verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That means the deepest part of your mind. It means your conscience. To the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. We certainly had a chance to reflect on that on Thanksgiving. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, oftentimes we just kind of go through a perfunctory song service. It's kind of part of the uh, church service, and we just take it for granted. But very seldom, I think, do people go along with a song, which is a hymn or a spiritual song, ringing around their minds. Most of the time, it's something they've heard in this world. It's something that they've gotten from a tape or a movie or what have you. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Is that is he serious? Is that something there that we're supposed to take to heart? Is that something you can really do? You can be the kind of a person who is so up in Christ, thinking about, I'm saved, I'm going to live forever, that you can be happy in the face of adversity, and actually have a lilting, spiritual kind of a song. I'll tell you somebody who did, and that's David. Now, to get ahead of my story just a little bit here, and I don't want to go on too long today, but I do want to cover the ground. David 
of course, was inspired to write, although others wrote some of the Psalms, and it's a collection. David wrote many, or most of them. But he was inspired to do it in music. We've lost the music. All we have are the words. We do not have the music. But when David was inspired to think those thoughts, he was playing on an instrument, and it was actually done musically. You know, in Ezekiel 28, when you read about Satan the devil, Lucifer, who from the very word go, from the beginning part of his uh, existence as a created archangel, it said that the workmanship of your tabrets and your pipes was perfect in thee from the day thou wast created. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown critical and experimental commentary says that the word tabrets means tambourines and pipes means like a flute. There's a potential art, uh, uh, ancillary suggestion that some have made having to do with the various uh, 12 precious jewels on the 12 gates of the holy city in the book of Revelation, and also the precious jewels that were on the priest's robes and the Urim and the Thummim, and that were worn and apparently a part of the vesture of that great archangel and the beauty that reflected from him. But you know, you think about pagan mythology, and there is a rough goat, half goat, half man who plays on a, a, a pipe, and he is seen to be dancing around. His name is everything isn't it? It's all. His name means everywhere, omniscient, which is a pagan abomination and a blasphemous title. His name is supposed to be Pan. Remember that? Pan. And he plays on a flute. Well, you know, I am going to propose that since music is the international language, and since people of all races and cultures can listen to music and be affected by it, repulsed by it, as I am by Arab and Japanese music, or attracted to it, as I am by certain kinds in Western cultures, that music definitely affects human moods and human minds. There is no question about it. That's why when you go to a mystery, you see a mystery movie on TV, they got these screeching, weird sounding, you know, timed kind of, uh, I don't know, all kinds of weird sounds. It'll just get you all upset and all spooky feeling, because it's spooky music, right? Now, there is happy music. There's music that makes you kind of contemplative and nostalgic. There's music that uh, will make you want to stand out in the street and march. You play that to a bunch of Germans, and they just start marching. You know, just play. We sing the German national anthem every few weeks here in church. I used to tell my dad that, and it just went by him real quick. He didn't know what I was talking about, but I thought, what are you, what are you, what, what are you going to do if some of these people from Israel come and visit us and we're singing Deutschland über alles? But anyway, it didn't matter. Bob, you don't know which which uh, song I'm talking about, do you? But it's in the songbook, and it's a nice old song because they redid the words of it, but it happens to be the German national anthem. I think we ought to at least sing our own national anthem as often as we do the German one. The Japanese one we wouldn't really enjoy because nobody can sing it, doesn't understand the words, wouldn't know what we're saying, probably wouldn't like the music anyway. But we tend to do that. Now, music definitely does affect human minds. And sometimes you can get songs and tunes lodged in your head that you just can't get out. I've had that happen, where I've had to then begin to think about other songs, and I've got to just get this song out of my head that I don't want in there anymore. This is a serious scripture, not just a passing little bit of spiritual salt and pepper as a matter of a suggestion. Over in Hebrews 9, verses 9 through 14, is a scripture which has to do with the physical aspects. Uh, let me hurry through that because uh, there are several others that I could, could cite with regard to this, and I've touched upon it in passing. Talking about the first tabernacle, 
and in breaking in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and different kinds of washings. Now, there are religions where you think for all the world a bunch of people were like a bunch of beavers and otters and are just scrubbing away all the time. And that's got to feel good, washing, serving altars, serving temples, serving churches, and going through rituals and cardinal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, by the work and the physical repugnance of actually sacrificing animals, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, that's a kind of a same thing as a shower. You get in the shower with a bar of life, boy, and you can get your body clean. That's fine. But that's as far as it goes, and it is going to get dirty again in a few hours if you sweat. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience. Now, take that word apart. The word science means knowledge. The prefix con means with, with knowledge. That means literally your recollections, your memories. But it means a little more than that because it casts your recollections or your memories in a pro-con or in a good and bad, or a white and black, or in a, you know, righteous or unrighteous configuration. Because you don't need to have conscience in the way that it's used in the dictionary about good deeds, only the evil ones. You need to have a clear or a clean conscience, not an evil, turgid, spotted conscience. Purge your conscience, that has to do with the mind. Saying nothing there about washing pots and vessels. We can all go back and spend two hours in the kitchen cleaning it up. It doesn't help us spiritually. And what God is dealing with here is the mind. It's all very mental what we're talking about. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Job said in Job 42, 2, when he came to repentance, he said, Now I know that no thought can be withholden from thee. James talked about lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin. You see with the eye, the mind then conjures up a thought. And there are many scriptures, if you look up, as I did this morning, how many times there are thoughts mentioned in the Bible. Let's give you just one example in Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 10. And why does God give the example here about money, unless it would be something so commonplace that many people would begin to contemplate evil, stealing, robbery, withholding from the poor, ripping people off, or whatever, when it has to do with money. Deuteronomy 15 will begin in verse 7. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of your gates in the land which the eternal your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart. Now the heart's always talking about the innermost motivating factor of the mind. It's not that, that pump in there that's constantly circulating your blood. It's your, your brain, your mind nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide unto him, and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying, the seventh year, just next year, the year of release is at hand. And your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. 
and he cry unto the Eternal against you, and it be sin unto you. You shall surely give him, and your heart shall not be grieved, that is, feel pecuniary, resent it, feel angry because you've got to give to a poor person when you give unto him, because that for this thing the Eternal your God shall bless you in all your works, because it says God loves a cheerful giver. He says, Beware that no evil thought takes place in your wicked heart. There are about three levels of thought, and I won't go into that. Dr. David Antion, my brother-in-law, uh, Mrs. Molly Antion is here with us today. If he were here, he's got a doctorate in psychology, and he could go through a lot of that with you about all these subliminal thoughts and the subconscious thoughts and the certain patterns that a lot of us will tend to follow mentally, and a great deal about human emotion and human thought processes, which a psychologist has to study for literally years to obtain a doctorate in that field. This mind of ours is an extremely sensitive, complex mechanism. We've gone over again about the analogy of the computer. But now, how do we overcome evil thoughts? I told this lady, and she was as upset and as distraught as any human being who ever came to you that said, pray for me, Brother Ted, I've got terminal cancer. I'll tell you, she was. She was serious about it. Her brain, her thoughts were driving her crazy. Have you ever had the experience in your mind of having to shout at yourself? You ever drive down the road and slap your own face? I have. I had that experience a time or two in my life where I've had to say, No, Ted! And just start to think, turn on the radio, get my mind and say, I'm going to think about this and start to think about it because of an evil thought. I've had to pray that God would send an archangel to combat and to throw away from me any evil spirit that would try, because I figure Satan the devil doesn't like me all that much. Now, a lot of people I could tell you he probably likes. They're doing a great job for him, and some of them will pretend to be killing demons by chopping up paper little bits right on television. And the demons are sitting right there just cackling, getting the biggest kick out of, a boy, get him, ah, you know, well, not me. That would scare the daylights out of me. I'd just soon play with a lighted match in front of a butane bottle as I would to mess around with the evil spiritual world there is out there. I'll never forget one time a lady, I mean, my hair stood straight up. I was in my desk at about 1955 or 6, I suppose. Ambassador College campus, lady was there whose husband said that he'd been experiencing all kinds of crazy things like drawers opening and closing and nightgown waltzing across the room. And one time he was going through a stop sign, I mean a, a light was changing, his wife was sitting beside him and all of a sudden something jammed the gas on, he went roaring through there and almost had a wreck. Well his wife was really strange and it was suspected that she had a demon. They were to come into council. She walked into my office, let out a gasp of amazement, and pointed right over my head and said, Is it possible for an angel and a demon to be above your head at the same time? Scared me half to death. Well, in the name of Christ, I rebuked that spirit. And uh, I don't remember what eventually became of the lady. I really don't know over the long term. I just know it scared me half to death. And any of these guys that are pretending to you know, cast out demons, had better remember what happened to the seven sons of Siva, a Jew, who were trying to pretend that they were casting out a demon, and this man in whom that demon was whipped up on all seven of them, left them absolutely naked and bloody. So you just don't want to mess around with something like that. And I'm telling you, this lady was as serious when she came to me 
about evil thoughts trying to intrude into her brain as any person would have been serious about terminal cancer. And I told her about prayer. And then I told her about Bible study. I know I'm supposed to sound like a minister, so I'm supposed to say prayer and Bible study. I know. Sound real spiritual. No, I'm serious. Let's turn to the 119th Psalm. And we'll conclude real quickly here. 119th Psalm. I have found that this works. I have found that when evil thoughts, when bad thoughts or motivations or something are coming to you, now you can pray with your eyes closed and not see anything, or you can pray on your knees with your eyes open. The Bible doesn't have some command here that says, don't ever pray with your eyes open. Because Christ walked along and lift up his eyes to heaven. I can read it to you out of the New Testament and said, Father, I am thankful that thou hearest me, and I know that you hear me always, at the tomb of Lazarus. And his eyes were open. I'm not saying you ought to look around during the prayer. It's sort of a habit we've gotten into. But you can get on your knees when you've got evil thoughts, open up the Psalms, and open with a prayer and ask God to make these scriptures your prayer and read aloud, if you need to, in a private place. But just to show you a few examples in David's prayer, which is a musical prayer that he was inspired to think not only the words, but the song itself. And don't we wish we had the music that went along with it. Psalm 119. Blessed, uh, verse 1, are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart, the innermost part of the mind. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Let's just skip along to verse 15. I will meditate in thy precepts. What is a precept? It is a principle of God's law. What principle? Well, as I've said in sermons in the past, we just meditate on what would it be like in Smith County, Tyler, Texas, if every individual in Smith County obeyed one of God's Ten Commandments, which says, Thou shalt not steal. Would there be any jails? Would there be a sheriff's department? Would you have all those keys in your pocket? Would you worry about your car? Would you worry about your possessions, etc.? And David let his mind just wander about the glorious beauty of God's laws and his precepts. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget. That's all mental. I will not forget your word. Over in verse 23, princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of thy precepts. Verse 29, remove from me the way of lying. To lie, your old brain's got to be working so fast you about break out in a sweat. Because you've got to acknowledge the truth, be dodging around and making a lie. And he's saying, you know, if liars got to have wonderful memories. Honest people don't have to have a memory. You can have no memory at all. You don't care what it was you said yesterday as long as it's true. Only liars have got to have those great memories. Now, what was that story I told him? I better make it match up this time. You know, remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. Verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of your commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. 
There are so many, you could read the entire thing. In verse 59, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. And verse 61, I have not forgotten thy law. Verse 92, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts. Some of us will never forget all the bad jokes and four-letter words. David said, I will never forget thy precepts. His mind was filled with the things of God, and yet you can point to all the things David did, the sins he committed, the people he killed, and in spite of that fact, God said that David was a man after his own heart because David was a repenter, and you see the kind of a man he was. And then finally, verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. As I've said, the way to get air out of a glass is to fill it with water or milk, and the way to get evil thoughts out of your mind is to fill it with the thoughts of God. A final scripture in 2 Corinthians 10, and it reflects upon the armor behind me. It has to do with the uh, chapter in the book of Ephesians, fifth chapter, that talks about the whole armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10, and beginning in verse 3. For though we live in the human physical flesh, our warfare is not fleshly, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down reasonings, imaginations, and it has to do with evil imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself, and that's mental, not some tower of Babel protruding up in the air or a steeple on a Baptist church is a high thing, but a high thing mentally that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, when he talks about singing and having hymns and spiritual hymns in our hearts and having that attitude of God and then bringing thoughts into captivity to Christ, isn't that telling us that that aspect of our lives, the mental part, our recollection, our memory, our conscience, that we've got to continually work on that as well, and that that has got to be as we go toward the time of Christ's second coming to the point that we say, no, I forgot that old story, don't remind me, I don't want to, I don't want to dredge that up out of my mind again. That mentally, from the standpoint of our conscience, we've got to be allowing the washing of the water by the word like a clear, beautiful stream of rushing pure water that is just gradually dissolving and flushing out of our conscience and our memory every evil thought to the point that our thoughts are pure. So, as God says time and again, all those things that are beautiful and lovely, think on these things about a pure conscience, about bringing every thought into captivity to Christ. Let's quit thinking evil thoughts not just the outward manifestation of the things we do in coming to church, but the things that go on in the back of our heads that appeal to us. And every time it does, pick up the Psalm 119, get on your knees, start reading it aloud, and put the thoughts of God in there in the place of those wrong thoughts.